I don't see any guests with us today, but if you are a guest with us, we are in 1 Peter, letter of 1 Peter. We've been here since we planted this church, and we find ourselves today in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. I'll start back in verse 8 to provide some context. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we, your people, are incapable, apart from your spirit, of understanding and applying the word of God. We need the help of the Holy Spirit now to do this work. I need the help of the Spirit to speak the words that are true and right. And these, your sheep, need the help of the Spirit to feast on your word and apply it to their lives. Please help us all to do that, laying our lives open before you so that we might be that living sacrifice that you so desire us to be. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, many of you know that I am a landscaper as my day job, and about every 10 days in the mowing season, I cut grass over some of the most prized infrastructure in America. You may have heard of it. It's called the Colonial Pipeline. It is 5,500 miles long, and its twin-tube system can deliver 3 million barrels of oil a day from Texas to New York. If it were to malfunction, which it almost did recently when cyber attacks froze the, networks, uh, froze the network and uh, they demanded ransom money to restore its power, if it were to malfunction, the United States would be forced to an almost immediate and in some ways irremediable halt. But Knoxvillians don't even know that it exists. Most don't anyway, um, let alone that it runs straight through the heart of our city. And most probably couldn't care less. The gas is at the gas station, and as long as it's there for me to fill my car up, who cares where it comes from? I'm afraid this is similar to the way that many Christians treat their walk with Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the preeminent one, the Lord of all. He gives to the church life and breath and everything. But you don't see many Christians treating him with the level of respect that you'd think that worth deserves. They acknowledge him with their lips, but their lives show that they don't value him above all else. Like cars traveling north from Middlebrook Pike over the top of the Colonial Pipeline, that which is so vital, that which is so vital isn't even an afterthought. Beloved, let it never be said of the faithful at Christ the King that Jesus takes anything less than the highest place of honor in our lives. Let it not be said of us that we have some reverence for Christ or that we give much honor to Him. Instead, let it be said of us that He has all honor and that He has all of our reverence, for He is Lord and there is no other. Well, the text this morning 
addresses this particular issue. In the midst of turmoil, suffering, and even fear, what are Christians to do? They are to, according to the Legacy Standard Bible, sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. You'll remember last week when we ended the section having to do with verse 14 and having no fear of them nor being troubled, Peter was quoting from Isaiah 8.12. In Isaiah 8.12 in the Old Testament, the text reads this way, You are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not tremble. You are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not tremble. Now in your NASB or LSB Bible, verse uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 14, is in all caps. And that means that it is a word-for-word quotation from the Old Testament. But none of verse 15 is in all caps, regardless of which translation you have. However, Peter continues to quote almost directly from Isaiah chapter 8. In Peter's divinely inspired, and I mark those words, divinely inspired quotation from the prophet Isaiah, he has changed three significant things that were written in the Old Testament. Three significant things. Isaiah 8 verse 13 says, It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Now, Chris, you're telling me that Peter changed something from the Old Testament. He didn't just change something. He changed three things in this verse as he quotes it from the Old Testament here in this letter that was added to the New Testament. I'll say briefly that the New Testament author's use of the Old Testament is often a quandary to many Christians. If God inspired the Old Testament and it is perfect in its inspiration, then why did the New Testament writers change things or add words? Or why did they quote from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rather than quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus himself often quotes Old Testament passages from the Septuagint, which has some variation in wording from the original Hebrew. Well, I'll be honest, beloved, these questions have never really shaken me. God brought his word into the language of men through the means of inspiration to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. All of it is a gift from God and all of it is grace for us. Today, I hope to show you some of the reasons why God inspired the New Testament and particularly the quotations from the Old Testament in the ways that he did. So the first thing that Peter changed, he changed three things. The first thing that he changed is that he added the name of Christ. Let me read both verses in parallel to you again. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 says, It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. But Peter wrote, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Beloved, this is significant. It is one of the most significant attestations of the complete deity of Christ in your New Testament. The full deity of Christ is spoken directly here by the Apostle Peter. When Isaiah told the king Ahaz, not to fear Ephraim and Syria, but rather to fear God alone, and that they were to fear a God that they knew, but they only knew from a distance. He had come down on a mountain and spoken to them through Moses and was to be worshipped by them behind a veil. If they but saw the Lord, they would die. And then Christ came, and He died for sinners, and He rent the veil in two. And he opened the door for us to be made right with God, to be adopted into God's own family. And Peter says right here in verse 15 that Christ is that God, that Christ is Yahweh himself. And it is that Christ that we are to set apart in our hearts as holy. The glory of God the holiness of God, the omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience of God, 
the supremacy of God and all the authority of God. Christ is that God. Christ is that God. He is not all that the Bible says about the Godhead. Though fully God himself, he makes up only one member of the Trinitarian God revealed in Scripture. Question 6 of our catechism that we've been reading through states, How many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer, there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. But make no mistake, beloved, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh God. Now just a brief point of application as I talk about this first change that Peter's made. We just got started. I must ask you, is Christ God? Is He God? Is He Yahweh God whom deserves all of your worship? Do you depend on Him for your daily bread? Or do you treat Him like He's the sidekick of the Father? That He's a little bit less than God? We'll speak more on this in the coming moments. Peter secondly changes Isaiah chapter 8 by adding the word heart as the place where Christians are to set Christ apart as their Lord. At this point in the church, with all the persecution that has come and likely will continue to come, Christ does not visibly appear to be Lord of all. Yet, it is by establishing His rulership in our hearts that He accomplishes the bringing in of the new Eden. Recreating this earth again to be what He intended it to be means establishing a new garden. And with a garden, there must be seeds. The gospel is the seed, and it is planted in the soil of the human heart through our witness, both verbal and nonverbal. And Peter's talked about both of those at this point. This is how God intends to Christianize the whole world. Also, in Peter's mind, the Greek word cardia, which is where we get our word cardiac, means heart, is the center of both the physical and the spiritual man, the inmost control center of your soul, the immaterial human command station. When we think about that centermost place of everything we are, the psychosomatic humanity, the, the spirit and body joined in one inseparable being, the seat of command is in the human heart. I ask you another point of application. What place does Jesus hold in the very seat of your being? The place where your life, strength, emotions, thoughts are all fed from? Sometimes we as Reformed Christians chide people for their use of Christianese. Phrases like, I invited Jesus into my heart. But beloved, let's be careful. You want Jesus in your heart. And if you are in Christ today, that is the place where He must reign principally and above all. If you will not have Christ above all there, He will not be above all in anything in your life. While Isaiah speaks not of the heart nor of Christ, Peter speaks of both of these. And in changing a third thing, Peter directs our attention away from the holiness of Yahweh to the lordship of Christ. Away from the holiness of Yahweh to the lordship of Christ. In your ESV, the text reads this way, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, while this isn't a bad translation, because there's no error in this thought, I think the ESV is missing the mark here. The Greek in the New Testament that Peter was inspired to write, in verse 315, literally reads, and I'll read it to you literally, is transliterated from Greek to English. As Lord, but Christ set apart in the hearts of you. As Lord, but Christ set apart in the hearts of you. 
the Legacy Standard Bible, I think, has a more accurate reading. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, what I think is going on here is the ESV is looking to Peter's words, and they're trying to align his thoughts up with what they find in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. And that's where Peter's quoting from. It's not wrong. Christ is holy. He is Yahweh God. So He is all the holiness of the Godhead. All of that dwells in Him. But I think what Peter wants us to see here is the Lordship of Christ. He's directing our attention towards Jesus' kingship. And I'll speak about this more in just a moment. He says to sanctify, which means to cut away or to set apart from. If I was to take this morning's bulletin, and as you can see, there's three parts to it, and I was to tear one part off, and I'm not doing this demonstration because I want to put on a show, but to illustrate a point, this part... I've set apart as significant, and this part to me is no longer significant. Insignificant, significant, set apart. You see what Peter's asking for here. He's saying there is going to be a special place in your heart that Christ has that no one else has. Everything else is waste compared to the place where Christ is set apart in your heart. Now think, beloved, for just a minute of all that the early church had to fear from the enemies of God. They had to fear attack. They feared injury, loss of a limb or of a loved one. They feared for their security, for daily provisions, for health, for safety, and yes, they feared death. And Peter says to us as Christians today, as he said to the early church, which of those fears is Lord over you? Which of those fears is Lord over you? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Do you see? He says Christ has the place of rulership and lordship. Fear will have no dominion over us. None. Why? Because Christ is Lord. Even in the Christian West, we're tempted to put our prosperity over Christ. Constantly, we're tempted to do this. Peter says, money is not your Lord. Your home or your family or your job or fame or strength or prosperity, none of those is your Lord. But Christ is Lord and Lord alone. There is none other in our hearts that Scripture commands us to set apart as holy, as the Lord of our lives. Jesus is the only one. The Greek word kurios here, used in verse 15, is he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he, that is Christ, has the power of deciding. He is the master He is the Lord. If Christ is Lord, He is Lord of all. Beloved, I ask as your application for this point, is Christ Lord in your heart? Does He have the significance, the preeminence, the full and complete authority and rule? I'm asking, are you still holding on to any autonomy in your life? On this week's episode of the Cross Politic podcast, the Fight, Laugh, Feast crew interviewed a lawyer and legal analyst named Jeff Schaefer. With a seemingly endless stream of new sexual perversions that Americans are engaged in day by day, Jeff was asked if, legally speaking, the slippery slope that we're on can be traced back to one or any number of cases in our country's history. The answer in the timeline that he gives is pretty eye-opening. He began by saying that creationary language, God's rulership, God's authority over everything that he's created, was slowly being taken out of the legal decisions made back in the early 1900s. For example, in Pierce versus Society of Sisters from 1925, this uh, Supreme Court decision did away with Oregon's law forbidding private schools. Well, now that 
That sounds like a pretty good thing, Chris. I mean, parents can have a decision whether or not they send their child to a public school or to a private school. And while that may seem positive, the decision omitted, and specifically, this was on purpose, it omitted any mention of the parent's God-given authority over the child, that that's grounded in the creation order. Instead, it implied that the court had granted the parents the right over their children. In the win, parents, we give you the right over your children. You get to make the decisions. Why? Because the, the court said so. In Buck versus Bell in 1927, this ratified the forced sterilization of imbeciles, ep epileptics, and the feeble-minded. Do you have any idea that in the United States of America, in our history, we legalized forced sterilization of human beings? The thought was that these imbeciles, epileptics, and the feeble-minded got these traits through their genes, through their DNA, and that that needed to be bred out. It was a eugenics movement. As a result, 18,000 Americans were sterilized. And the court celebrated this decision. They thought that they had made a huge advance in the history of our country. Uh, court case that you might be more familiar with, Griswold versus Connecticut. This was the striking down of a law that forbade the use of contraceptives by legally married people. And again, the reason for this was the sanctity of marriage that the court acknowledged. As a married couple, you have the right to make your own decisions. But just seven years later, in the Eisenstadt versus Baird case in 1972, this established the right of unmarried persons to procure birth control on the same basis as married couples. This decision by the court had language written into it specifically to set the court up for, you guessed it, 1973 and Roe versus Wade. The court decided here that a woman has a legal right to not be pregnant if she doesn't want to, under any circumstances, this was based on a legal penumbra, the spirit or essence of a law, having to do with a person's right to privacy. Now, why do I bring up all of those court cases? They have something in common. Take the Pierce case in 1925. Parents wanted the court to affirm that they were given by God the authority to decide where and how to school their kids. The court, in effect, replied, no, you have that right yourselves. You don't need God. Later on, the court said, you have the right to a world free of retarded people. And you have a right to make your own choices about birth control. And whether or not you fornicate. And whether or not you use birth control when you fornicate. And if you get pregnant, you even have a right to kill your baby. And you might say, okay, I see where you're going, Chris. Christ is no longer Lord. The court is essentially acting as the Lord. And yes, in a sense it is. But I want to make a different point. Fallen man craves control. Fallen man craves control. Is Christ Lord, for example, over when life begins and when it ends? We would all say yes. Is he Lord over when we get to make love? Yes, he is. He decides when it's appropriate to do that and when it's not. Is he Lord over how often that sex produces offspring? How do most Christians answer that question today? Does he have an opinion about birth control? And I would remind us all, there's no neutral place in the universe there's no place where Christ says, I'll let you make that choice. There's no place that we get to where we could say, the Bible doesn't really speak about that, so I think I'll make my own choices. I'm not asking you what Jesus' opinion is. I know we want to debate that. People want to, well, here's what he said, and no, there's freedom here. I'm just begging the question, do you acknowledge Christ as Lord in any area of your life 
or in every area of your life? Do you act as a Lord without Christ? Put another way, is Christ Lord of all? Have you set Him apart as Lord of all? He is not just Lord of abortion, but He's Lord over everything, including contraception, including gender, including our natures. We wonder how we got to such a deep, depraved place. And when the court says, you have these rights, and Christians don't shout at the top of their lungs, bad decision, no we don't. God gave us that right. That's where we have to stand. If these legal decisions are going to mean anything in the future, it's not because the court decided. So they overturned Roe. How long is it going to take before they overturn that? Jesus decided. Jesus made the choice. And in every decision of a Christian's life, we've got to be the people who say, no, it's Christ who makes that decision for me. Christ chooses. Today is Palm Sunday. And Christ, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, rode into Jerusalem to the praises of all of Jerusalem. They called out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know, beloved, that a little less than a week later, they were all calling out for him to be crucified. Today, you have sung your acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Does this last week's actions affirm or deny that claim? And before you get too depressed, remember, this is why we love the gospel. This is why we love the good news. Because every one of us had some event this last week. Even if it was one, likely multiple areas of our lives where Jesus, I don't want Him to be Lord now. I need control in this moment. And Jesus died for that. That sin got nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. If you realize today that in this moment you've never acknowledged the Lordship of Christ in the way that I'm articulating, that you've never bowed the knee to Him, today is the day to do that. Today is the day to bow the knee and come to Christ. We sang it this morning. Every knee shall bow to Thee. Why? Because you bowed for me. You laid down underneath the weight of the wrath of God for me. If this is not your story, that you have not bowed the knee to Christ, today is the day. Give it all to Christ. Lay your life down before Him. Repent of your sins and turn away from them. And Jesus promises that everyone who comes to Him, He will not cast one out. He accepts every single one of us who come to Him in faith and repentance. Well, I know I've spent a lengthy bit of time on that first phrase. Set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. But Peter goes on saying, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. It's that kind of absolute surrender by Christians that makes the world want to say, Where did you get that hope? We've got all of these fears around us, all of these things that give us trepidation, that make us nervous or anxious. And when the world sees us completely prostrate before the Lord of the universe, they stop and they say, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I think this text reads well when you've set Christ apart as master and commander of your heart in the face of any form of persecution, it's natural that people are going to ask. This passage is often used as a text for evangelists and Christian apologists. An apologist is someone who defends the faith against arguments against the faith. And Christians should always be ready to give a defense for their faith, including in a proactive way, like public witnessing on sidewalk. But, beloved, this verse isn't directed towards those who go and proclaim. It's directed towards Christians who have people come and ask. 
In the Christian Standard Bible, it reads this way. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you. Another reason this verse is important is that Peter's words could sound contradictory to something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, Now when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That sounds like it's in contradiction to what Peter's saying. Jesus is saying, don't prepare. Peter's saying, do prepare. Well, this passage here that we're dealing with this morning from 1 Peter 3 is not in a judicial context. Christ was speaking of those like Stephen who would be carted before a court. And Stephen wasn't to be worried or anxious about what he would say. The Spirit of God breathed on him and gave him the words to say in that moment of trial. But this verse for us today has everything to do with our being asked about our hope in Christ. So let me give you two points of application to clarify this. You should make ready your defense of the hope that the lost see in you. Application number one, you should make ready your defense of the hope that the lost should see in you. This is likely to include three things. First, that you've set Christ apart as Lord in your heart so that you are living in a way that begs the question. Let us not get the proverbial cart before the horse. Number two, know that you are going to have to speak and know what you would say in defense of your hope of Christ. The Greek word apologia here means a speech made in defense. What would you say to someone right now if they asked you where your hope comes from? And what elements would your response include? Would it include the gospel? A real simple gospel paradigm to think of is God, man, Christ response. The world begins with God, His creation, His plans, His rules. Man, we're created in God's image. We fall. We're in sin. We need help. The answer, Christ. And present Christ as crucified and risen from the dead. And then, response. But should our answer include anything more? Because of Christ's death and resurrection, He is now Lord of all. And that is what comforts us. And should arrest their souls to respond to Him. Thirdly, this takes practice. And those who go out with us to do evangelism, both men and women, have seen how difficult it can be to have one of these conversations in real time. And I would encourage you, if you've not come out with us, find a day when you can come out and practice sharing your faith with unbelievers. It will help to make you ready for those moments when people ask you, what is this hope that I see in you? Well, I told you two points of application. The first, make ready your defense. The second, our defense should be gentle and in the fear of God. The Legacy Standard Bible says that our defense should yet be with gentleness and in the fear of God. The Greek word prautes means mildness, gentleness, or meekness. And the Greek word phobos, which the ESV translates all throughout 1 Peter, to be a respectful posture. Again, not a bad translation, but the word literally means fear or dread. And when Peter speaks of fear, he always speaks of it in relationship to how we posture ourselves towards God. There's an awe, there's a reverence, there's a fear there towards God. I want to speak both positively and negatively about this encouragement to do this gently and with the fear of God in mind. Positively speaking, no one should ever be able to bring a legitimate accusation of cruelty or brazenness against Christians who are sharing about the hope that is within them. Many of you have heard of people when they first come to Calvinism, they get a little unsettled, which is so strange because they've come to this knowledge of the doctrines of grace, right? Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. There's all these doctrines, but all this grace that we've received. And for whatever reason, 
when people come to this understanding of theology, they seem to lose a lot of grace, okay? They go around to their friends and they say, don't you understand the doctrines of grace? You're like, whoa, okay, you are a graced person, sir. Chill out. We call them cage stagers. Somebody needs to lock them in a cage, okay? It should be done gently and it should be done with respect. I'll speak negatively about this encouragement from Peter here, though. Though we are not to open ourselves up to a charge of cruelty or brazenness, our gentleness in the fear of God doesn't mean what we're often today told that it means. And this is the area that most of the big Eva churches we've talked about in the past focus on when they get to this passage. This is a passage about evangelism. This is a passage about sharing your faith with those who ask you your hope and immediately it's, but be gentle. Don't, don't be mean. Don't hurt people's feelings. I need to tell this woman that murdering her baby is wrong and that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Insert the Jesus juke. But the Bible says to always speak with gentleness and respect. That doesn't sound very gentle to me. There you have it. Man becomes the judge of what is best for the unbeliever. Now, I'm not saying we should not be discerning. That's exactly what Peter's telling us to do. But isn't it interesting? We're back to that place again where control. I want to control, not just my evangelism, I want to control everybody else's evangelism. Brother, that didn't sound very nice the way that you said that. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe he needed a rebuke. Or maybe God fits his arrows differently and shoots them from his string in different ways. Maybe people are created to be used in a variety of ways in the body of Christ. Beloved, we need to be ready to hurt somebody's feelings. Jesus is Lord of all, and that demands a response from the lost. Gary North is a theologian, pastor. He once said, Meekness doesn't mean being a wimp before men, but being humble before God. I think that will help to settle in a Christian's mind how you posture yourselves towards the outside world. Look, that's exactly what Peter says. You do it with gentleness, but you do it in the fear of God. I'm not afraid of this person. I don't want to unnecessarily offend them, but I must speak the truth the way that God said it. I'm not going to change anything to try and deal with their felt needs. I'm fearful of God. I want to hear, well done, good faithful servant. There should be no incongruence in our minds about how to be meek in our presentation of the fully unleaded, weapons-grade gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, quickly, verse 16. In the Legacy Standard Bible, it says, "...having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame." What does Peter already anticipate happening to Christians who share their hope in Christ with meekness and the fear of God? that the lost still won't listen. What's worse, they will slander you for your good deeds. You've probably heard things like, no, Jesus is not Lord of all. You just want to make us all feel bad for exercising our rights. You're so full of hate. You want us all to be in your cult. You want to control us. Interestingly enough, they want to control their own lives. You have a guilty conscience and you want to feel better about yourself. You're probably abusing your wife. I know you're abusing your children. Religion is the opiate of the masses, and you're smoking way too much. Now, in that moment, when they won't hear you, when they try to make you feel bad, and they want you to repent of knowing Christ and walk away from Him, you have to keep your conscience at the ready. This last week, Wendell sent out a series of videos on an abortion case in D.C. You probably know by now 
about the pro-life sidewalk workers who were arrested for blocking the entrance to a major D.C. murder mill. This group was also involved in the discovery of a box which Daniel mentioned this morning in his pastoral prayer. This box contained 115 murdered children. Five were old enough to have lived outside the womb with medical attention. 110 of the babies were murdered in the first trimester and those were buried, but before the five late-term aborted remains could be passed off to an independent medical source for autopsy, the D.C. police arrested the pro-lifer in possession and seized the remains of the five. When this hit the Internet, what do you expect? Cue slander. NBC News reports, Police on Wednesday found five fetuses at the Washington, D.C. home of an anti-abortion rights activist, notice all the phrasing, who has been indicted in connection with a blockade at a reproductive health clinic. The fetuses were found after a tip was given regarding potential biohazard material. In response to this news, comments like the ones that I'm about to read to you were fairly common. One person said online, I'm going to create a death metal band named Fetus Snatcher and sing about going back in time to retroactively abort anti-abortionists, Republicans, Hitler, etc. I hope I can sell a few tapes. Another person said, a rescue mission? Stealing dead fetuses is not a rescue mission. You people are sick. Another person said, these nine are not heroes. They chain themselves up inside a clinic while violently protesting and preventing women from receiving health care to which they are more than entitled to. That clinic provides services other than just abortion. These people are oppressors. They prevented access to health care for women. Better hope that their new addresses aren't public knowledge or else they'll just have to move again. Um, Wendell did mention that one of the nine that was arrested is an Orthodox Christian. The others are Catholic, and I think one was an atheist. This brother who was arrested, his name is Jonathan Darnell. He is a Reformed brother, and you better believe that he's going to continue to take slander for his participation in this story. It's in moments like these that a Christian needs a clear conscience before God for what they were doing to stop abortion. Could something like this happen to us, even here in East Tennessee, in the future? Perhaps. In such cases, it will be tempting for anyone being slandered to be fearful and entertain doubts. Nothing on our conscience should cause that hope in our Savior to fade. They ought to see us beaming like Stephen was when he was interrogated. Acts chapter 6. They put forward false witnesses, slanderers, who said, This man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Of course, Stephen said none of those things. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin saw that his face was like that of an angel. They couldn't mistake the hope of glory that was on him. Well, Peter concludes with verse 17. It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than doing wrong. This verse might seem a little prosaic. It's kind of an obvious statement. But I want to encourage you, beloved, never to think of verses in the Bible as not needing to have been written. Even the long and seemingly insignificant genealogies and listings of numbers hold rich treasuries of insight and wisdom if we will plumb their depths. Now, I'll say briefly two things about this verse. First, Peter understands that Christians will be tempted to think of all of their suffering as having been for the Lord. Tom Schreiner says, Peter knew human nature, realizing that even Christians may be apt to explain all suffering as an indication of their righteousness, when some of it may be deserved and come to them because of their sins. Have you ever 
had a situation in, in your house with a children. Situation unfolds between two children and you're not quite sure what the first child did. But the second retaliates in sin and you saw it happen. You then call that child in for discipline and they jump up and down and what do they say? I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, well, in their mind, they probably didn't. But you saw it happen. You know. Christians are going to have to deal with suffering. Let it not be deserved. Let it not be deserved. I'll, I'll give a word of caution here as I conclude this point of application. It is implied in verse 17 that you know that you are suffering for doing good. And Christians will often ask, maybe with a sense of a guilty conscience, what if I don't know? What if I'm suffering and I can't think of anything that I did wrong, but I'm concerned that I did do something wrong? I would encourage you to pray like David did. Psalm 139, verse 24. This is the very last verse of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any, any hateful way or hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. That's the last verse. And then he moves on. He doesn't sit here and wallow in it. No emoting going on. Just, God, I'm concerned that if I've sinned against you, I want to know about it. So search me and tell me. And then move on. Now the second thing I want to say about verse 17 as we close. And this is the best news. Nothing happens to believers apart from the will of God. Job suffered mightily at the hands of Satan. You know he did nothing to deserve all the disasters that befell him. All were convinced at the time that all of that was happening to Job that only great sinners could reap such punishment. Job defended his honor, insisting that he did nothing to warrant the horrible disasters. By the way, it was not sinful for him to do that. It was only when he put God in the box and started saying, I demand an answer, that he crossed the line. Job never found out why all the evil happened to him, but we know. We know it was the devil. We know he was trying to get one up on Yahweh. Satan presented his plans to the Lord, but God, but God had to sign off on it. God had to say yes. The all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God is in complete control of everything. Martin Luther said, even the devil is the Lord's devil. Beloved, I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know what to do about the U.S. government making digital money and monitoring all of our lives through how we spend it. I'm not even decided on what to do if Costco runs out of toilet paper again. But this is such good news. God is in control. Absolute control. I know this. I don't want to be found in some dystopian future with a bunch of reasons to be persecuted because I'm living in sin. Set Christ apart as Lord. I told you at the beginning of the message that about each week I mow over the colonial pipeline. I didn't know that's what it was when I took the job from Florida Rock and Tank Lines. Just some pipes coming out of the ground. Now that I know what they are, I'll admit to having some trepidation every time I mow that yard. I can just imagine the headline, Knoxville Landscaper Cuts More Than Grass. <laughs> Colonial Pipeline Fails, Gas Prices Soar. That's not how I want to be remembered. <laughs> Beloved, you don't want to be remembered as the bride of Christ who acted like you ran his house. He called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So do you rule your own world? You went to the sidewalk to defend the faith and nobody even asked you about your faith in Christ because it never showed. They could see that Christ wasn't ruling in your heart, so why should He rule over them? 
Oh, may Jesus be first in all things in our lives. May he have the final say in everything we do. May it create in us a good conduct that demands an answer. May we answer well with a clear conscience and suffer for doing what we ought to do. God tells us we can hear on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. But he calls us to absolute allegiance to his Christ. So beloved, will you bow the knee to him? Let's pray. Oh Jesus, what a beautiful picture it is of you entering Jerusalem to shouts and praises of the masses, the people laying out their garments before you, And you truly are that victorious. And you will come again. And you will come again on the victory march. To take back this world, which by your power and through your spirit, we believe we will be able to hand to you and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But for your church here at Christ the King in Anderson County, would you please see if there be any any wicked way in each of us? Is there an area of our lives where Christ does not have absolute authority? Are we afraid, Lord, to look into the perfect law of liberty? And it is. It's the law that sets us free. And yet we're afraid because we don't want to know what God hath said about such and such an issue. Oh, Lord, Give us courage. O Lord, give us bravery to look. And O Lord, remind us of the precious blood of Christ. Because we have been plunged beneath that crimson flood, we will, we know it is your will to grow us up into every way into Christ Jesus. May this be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.